the Lord has been doing a lot uh, in me as I've been studying this passage that we're going into today, so I'm pumped to share it with y'all. Um, but I would love to just start by praying myself also, if that's okay. <laughs> Jesus, thank you that you are um, sovereign over everything. God, that you have things that you want us to come awake to, that you have things that you want to reveal to us that would set us free, that would allow us to live in greater life abundant. God, I pray that you would get me out of the way, Lord, that you could encounter each and every person who's here today, myself included, Lord, that we would meet with you and not um, just hear empty words, but that we would um, meet with your spirit and walk away changed. Thank you that that is just who you are and what you do. Um, Thanks for using empty vessels. May we uh, understand more of who you are. Your name, amen. Um, okay, so as we've seen through the summer, as we've kind of gone through all these parables, um, Jesus is very purposeful in the stories that he tells. Um, his stories are set apart as something called parables because they're simple and clear and have a distinct message and reason behind the story. And the story is definitely no different. Um, okay, so if you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Luke 18, 9 through 14, they'll... The words will be on the screen, so no worries if not, or you can flip to it in your phone. Um, But this is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. And Jesus tells this story because he's not a God of confusion. He's very clear about how people are justified before God, that it is a gift of his mercy, not of our works. And he wants us to understand that. As he himself sums this story up, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So as we dive into this, we're going to get into some words that have a lot of really deep meaning but aren't used in common language. Um, So I want to take a minute to define those for us. So the first one is righteousness, which is essentially living exactly as our creator designed us to, living in perfect harmony and right relationship with God. So it's about our hearts, not just our works. Um, And then legalism is following the letter of the law exactly. Um, The heart of a person isn't necessarily taken into account here. Um, It's more about the action that you take. And then justification, which is a legal term, where one is declared righteous in accordance with the law. In order for this to be real, the law has to be kept perfectly, without any exception. Um, James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point is guilty of all of it. So in order for justification to be real, true righteousness has to exist. They don't exist apart from each other. And then the last one is my favorite. It's life abundant. Um, So John 10.10 says, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's not just like a nice life, that's abundant, overflowing, vibrant, technicolor life that overflows out of you into everyone around you. And I believe this is why Jesus came, this is why he says he came, and why he tells this story specifically. Okay, so I want to frame it up for just a moment. Um, This is written by a guy named Luke, who was a doctor and one of the apostles who walked with Jesus. He is known for identifying people's diseases uniquely and then diagnosing them with a cure that would bring them to whole health. And Luke highlights how Jesus does this with people. He sees us where we are, and he diagnoses what we need 
and he loves us too much to leave us there if we are anywhere less than in full health. Um, yeah, he provides individual diagnoses to our sin that release us to live in life abundant. So as we trust the commandments of the God who created us and knows what is best, we are free to live as we were truly meant to. Um, before we dive in, I want to draw your attention to the audience also. We don't often get to see the heart of the people that Jesus is speaking to, but Luke highlights their heart here, and it's included for a reason, so let's pay attention. Okay, so Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So there's three main characters that we're dealing with here. We've got the Pharisee, the tax collector, and God. So let's focus in on the Pharisee and his relationships with the others first. Okay, so who is this Pharisee? We know a lot about this group of people through the Bible and through other texts from that time. They're a very well-documented group. Um, and if you grew up in the church, you probably have an instant impression that they're going to be the bad guy in the story. Um, and if you didn't grow up in the church, then it's probably just a really weird word. But I want us to sit with the original audience for a minute and just, like see how they would have heard this story, how they would have seen the Pharisees. So they were a group of priests that considered themselves to be guardians of the law. They wanted to uphold the holiness of the laws that God gave Israel. In doing this, they created all these expansions and applications that went beyond what God had explicitly stated. Just in case they slipped up, they didn't even want to get close to their actions breaking the law. Um, as this Pharisee in particular points out, he fasts twice a week. He gives, gives tithes of everything that he gets. And this goes above and beyond what God mandated as a part of the law. But I think we can agree that that at least looks respectable, like they're honoring God's holiness. They want their actions to be in line with what God says. And the original audience probably would not have seen anything wrong with the Pharisees' prayer initially. In fact, their minds might have been drawn to a psalm, like Psalm 26, where David is in a season of severe testing. He's being chased by the king of Israel for no reason. He's done nothing wrong. He's been in righteousness, and this king is coming after him unjustly, chasing him through, like, these backwoods villages and in mountain caves and all this stuff. And this is David's prayer. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. 
So I know for myself and for those of us who grew up or are in the American church, it's easy to be so terrified of legalism that we miss rejoicing in the righteousness that comes as we follow Jesus. So I want us to see this how David sees. We see him rejoice that he was able, by the grace of God, to stand firm and follow God into life abundant, even with sin enticing him. But this doesn't cause him to boast in himself. It draws him to proclaim God's faithfulness and to proclaim thanksgiving in the temple, to point people to God's wondrous deeds, not what he has done. He recognizes that it's God working in him that has allowed him to live rightly, but he doesn't shy away from rejoicing in that and declaring that it's true. Um, If God truly is who he says he is, and he loves us the way he says he does, and he knows what is best, then it makes sense that what he commands for his people and us walking in that would lead to this kind of joy. I just don't want us to miss that because we're so afraid of legalism. Um, So in this passage and through the context of where he's at, we know that David chose to cling to God's character instead of despair in persecution from Saul. We know that he chose to honor God's sovereignty in appointing government leaders instead of taking the life of the king, who was unjustly accusing him, even though it was basically handed to him multiple times. He chose instead to trust. He chose God's way over and over because he trusted the character of the giver of those commands. And we get to see him declare that it's worth it, that he has stepped into joy because of his obedience. And I love that he not only rejoices in righteous living, but he welcomes God to continue testing his heart and his mind to search him so that he could have more of God's guidance in how to walk in greater life abundant. He's humble even while rejoicing in righteousness. He knows that he can only walk in it because Jesus sought him out first and leads him away from what would kill that life. Um, He also thanks God out loud in the great assembly. So the original audience would not have thought that it was weird that this Pharisee was also proclaiming his righteousness out loud. Like that would have been a more common practice back then to pray out loud, even in the temple with other people around. If anyone would be expected to pray Thanksgiving for righteousness like David did in Psalm 26, a Jewish audience would no doubt believe that it would be the Pharisee. However, there's some really key vital differences between them. And it goes back to the motivation and the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I pray that we would not be so terrified of legalism that we miss rejoicing in righteousness, but also that we don't get wrapped up in righteousness and the actions that we miss the heart. God isn't fooled by our legalistic actions. He sees right through it. But as we grow to love him and follow him, Righteousness and life abundant will be a natural outpouring of that love, and we can rejoice in that because it's him who's doing it ultimately. It's us looking to him that allows us to go out and love others. Righteous living done because we trust him leads to rejoicing in life abundant, even in the midst of suffering like David was in. But righteous living done because we want to earn God's favor or man's approval keeps us from communion with God and does not justify us. The Pharisee did not walk away justified. So when I said that those of us who grew up in the church will sometimes think of the Pharisee as a bad guy, it's because 
Jesus calls out the Pharisees often. Um, like in a Luke 11, Luke eleven forty two, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and herbs and neglect justice and the love of God, much weightier matters. The point of tithing, of giving an offering to God, was not to check a righteousness box. It was to remind people that God is God and that he loves them enough to care for their needs. That everything we have is a gift from him anyway. And that sets us free from finding security in these material things that can weigh us down. Similarly, fasting was something intended to drive a person closer to God as they deprive themselves of something external for a time. It's not a measure of righteousness. It's something that comes out of and drives love for God. If we do this to check a box, then we miss it. Isaiah talks about Israel going through the motions of fasting but totally missing the heart of God for the oppressed people around them. True righteousness is never about an action alone, but about the heart behind it. And it will never lead you to isolate yourself. It will lead you to love the people around you and to love God. So let's look at how this particular Pharisee interacted with God. Okay, so remember what he prayed. God, thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or this tax collector. I fast, I give tithes, I do all these things. And we see what that led to. The Pharisee did not walk away justified. He was still separated from God. He thanks God for his relative or comparative righteousness compared to those around him, including this tax collector, as he defines it. He's getting to define what righteousness is here. So we see David rejoices in God's rightness and the gift of life abundant and following his commands with him as Lord. And then we see the Pharisee focusing on actions that he says set him above his neighbor, looking with contempt on them. And that leads to him being separated from God and from those around him. Comparative righteousness always has one of two outcomes. You either end up paralyzed by feelings of inferiority and can't even come to God. You feel like you're too far gone. Nothing could save me. Or you think that you're beyond the need for mercy and justification from God and won't come to him. Either way, you end up separated from the communion that we were created for. He would love you. He would accept you. Well, he does love you. He would accept you and he would justify you if you came to him in humility he lived and died because he loved the Pharisee, because he loved the tax collector, because he loved each one of us and wanted to give us the free, merciful gift of justification and communion with him. The greatest commandment, um, Jesus says, that sums up all the law and all the prophets, all the righteousness that these Pharisees were leaning on, as this, in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If this is the fulfillment of the law, then righteousness will never lead us to look on contempt, look in contempt on anybody. It will instead lead us to love the giver of that command, recognize our need for him, and rejoice in the life abundant that living rightly brings. It leads us to love him and it leads us to love those that he loves the way that he loves them. So now that we've looked into the Pharisees' relationships, let's look at the tax collector. Okay, so who is this guy? Let's remember our audience for a second. They 
looked in contempt on people. So this guy would have brought up instant revulsion. Tax collectors financially represented the Roman Empire. They took money from their brothers. It was not a good job that you took because you were passionate about the cause or believed in it. Um, this was a job that you did because you wanted the financial incentive. Romans didn't care if they sweetened the deal for themselves as long as the Romans got what was theirs. So it was common knowledge that most tax collectors added a personal tax to their brothers as they collected for the Romans. It's definitely unfair to lump all tax collectors from that time into one category, but the original audience definitely would have assumed and felt like they were better people. So to help bring this home a little bit, what comes to mind when I say Wall Street? Surely not everybody who works on that street fits the stereotype, but I would be surprised if phrases like money hungry, corrupt, lies, the 1% versus the 99% didn't come to mind. Um, the Occupy Wall Street movement was in our recent history and it gained international attention and the, this particular street in New York was protested in 82 countries because what they represented felt so strongly, it resonated, and people felt angry about the injustice. And this is so different because most of us don't even have to look anybody who works on Wall Street in the face as they're extorting you. Um, these men did what they were doing while looking their brother in the face. I can't even imagine what kind of resentment that would drive. Um, to know that you were paying for somebody else's excessive lifestyle. And you see it play out. It's not even just like, uh, maybe this is happening like it would be for us with the Occupy Wall Street movement. The tax collector represents someone who decides to follow their own rules and the security that they construct rather than trusting the goodness of God's righteousness. If anyone were to be condemned for not living in accordance with God's holiness, it would definitely be this man. But now let's look at how the tax collector interacts with God. He humbles himself. He admits his wrongdoing, and he desires to change. He stands far off, probably in the court of the Gentiles or with those who are considered unclean and couldn't even enter the temple. And his placement is mirrored by his posture. It says that he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. And is magnified by his words, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Note that he doesn't even seem aware of the Pharisee looking on him in condescension. He's not even, it just doesn't even matter. He's engrossed in communion with God. He's fully aware of the giver of the good life-giving commandments that he needs for life abundant, and he's fully aware of his inability to fulfill them. He's distraught by his own failure, and he doesn't try to explain it away. He doesn't say, God, everyone hates me anyway. Everyone assumes I'm doing this, so why not? Like, it's so hard to be on the margins. People won't hang out with me, so I might as well get something out of it. If I don't cheat my brothers, if I don't gossip or make fun of my boss at work, if I don't look at pornography every once in a while, if I don't hurt my family, I'm just living like everyone else. At least I don't. But no. He's done comparing himself to other people, and now he's comparing himself to a holy God. And when he looks at God, he's no longer paralyzed by the inferiority that comparative righteousness brings. He sees mercy, 
and he can come into the light carrying with him that sin and shame. He doesn't hide it anymore. He doesn't have to clean himself up first. And it wasn't too much for God. He cries out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here is the beauty. God responds to him with this man, the tax collector, went away justified. How can this be in line with a just God? All those people who hate him and want him to be punished, he legitimately was unrighteous. How can God justify that if someone who sins just once is considered guilty of all, and this man has a lifetime of sin? And not just that, but he represents someone who's chosen again and again to be his own God and make his own rules, spurning the gift of life abundant. If anyone would be too far gone, too entrenched in his sin, it would be this man. But the great, great news is that the gift of justification is not something that we can earn. God doesn't justify us based on our righteousness. He cannot be unjust, but he loves us and wants us to be with him. So he took the punishment that we and this tax collector rightly deserve. If we commit just one sin, we're guilty of it all. And we cannot earn our way back from that. That's impossible. We're all in the same boat here. But the tax collector's cry for mercy is answered in Jesus. Jesus knew what the answer would be to that question. When he was telling this story before he'd even died, he knew that the answer to have mercy on me would be answered by him dying on the cross for our sins. He took this tax collector's deserved punishment by living righteously in perfect harmony with God at every moment. He loved God and loved people and did the actions perfectly. He chose for God to be Lord, for him, his will to win, and then died the death that we deserved as guilty of breaking the whole law so that he could respond to that cry and to every cry for mercy after it with this man went away justified and this woman went away justified. We are able to come into the presence of God. So those who are humbled and ask for mercy will be exalted at the feet of Jesus alone. That is the only place to find justification before a holy God. So what about the Pharisee? What happens to him? <laughs> um, I want you to remember the audience for a moment, who this was told to. This story was told to those that the Pharisee represents. It was told to those who look on their neighbor with contempt, who trust that in themselves they're righteous. He sees that, and he loves them too much to let them live in their blindness that keeps them from life abundant. I love that he is so direct. This Pharisee seems like a lost cause now. He walks away unjustified, but Jesus says, no, you are not a lost cause. Exalting yourself will not bring you into right standing before God, and it will not bring you into communion with him. But be humbled. Come to me and ask for mercy, and even the worst of sins can be forgiven. The Pharisee's boasts don't impress God. He sees right through all self-inflated, righteous, pride crap. And even though he sees their deepest sins in this, he doesn't look on them with contempt. He looks them in the eye, and says, Beloved, you are missing it. I love you too much to just let this slide. You will never live in life abundant unless you come to me for your righteousness. Open your eyes. And the irony is that growing up, I looked with contempt on the Pharisees. I was like, how on earth could they be so blind? It's so obvious. 
Um, but this is a tender spot for me because this is also my story. Um, I was and still often am like the Pharisee. I grew up in a Christian school, Christian family, was in church every time the doors were open, mission trips, Bible verses, you name it, probably did it. Um, and I heard solid truth. It wasn't like I was in some cult somewhere that was preaching something crazy. But in that, I made myself my God. And Jesus served me and my agenda. And it took um, meeting a girl who kind of like shook me out of that. It was uh, a young girl I met on a mission trip to Brazil um, who became a believer while we were there. And then I went back and um, she was 12 at the time. And I didn't actually get to go back to her village, but heard from one of the translators that her dad had committed suicide and her mom had abandoned her and her brothers and sisters and she was being raped pretty much every day by the men of her village and I just could not reconcile that with the God that I'd grown up believing in in my Dallas suburban Bible Belt middle class life (laughs) Um, it just didn't match Um, and so I started looking into other religions like very much under the radar, like nobody really knew that this was a turmoil that I was going through, but he just asked too much if it wasn't real. Um, And the God that I believed in wouldn't allow that kind of suffering to happen to one of his kids. So I just didn't know what to do with that. So I kind of ended up just, none of the other religions really seemed to click either, like they couldn't explain it sufficiently either, and so I just ended up distracting myself for a good six months until the Lord met me um, at this mandatory quiet time at a retreat. I did not want to do this, but it was 30 minutes, and I was really bored, so I was like, okay, fine. Um, So we had to read Psalm 46, and verse 10, I just got stuck on, which is, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I was like, wow, that would be great just to like be still and know that you're God. That would be awesome and make this so much easier. Also, if you're going to be exalted in the nations and in the earth, how can this be true for me here and it's not true for Christiani, the girl in Brazil, or somebody in India, or somebody in China, or where it's not normal to grow up hearing this truth? Um, so, suffice to say, I tried to be still and just know that he's God, sitting there for 20 minutes and couldn't do it. So, uh, Job 42 just kept like rolling through my mind and I was like, I don't even know if there are 42 chapters in Job, but let's just flip there and see what's up. Um, And it's the last chapter. And if you don't know the story of Job, he was a man who was considered righteous um, and God gives Satan permission to test him and to let him go through suffering. And he goes through some horrific stuff. And at first, His response is, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then, you know, there's 30 more chapters of musing and trying to figure out why. Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this suffering? Which is the same question that I was asking. And finally, in chapter 38, God responds. But he doesn't answer the question that Job is asking. He answers the question that actually matters, which is, who are you? And can I trust you even in the suffering? And so God goes into this monologue of this is who I am and this is how great I am and this is why you can trust me even in the suffering. And Job comes out of that 
in chapter 42, where I landed. And his response is in verses 5 and 6, where he says, I'd heard of this with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I humble myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Um, I did not realize the shift that this was in me until much later when I was telling my story. I don't know like when I became a believer, the way that we use that term or anything like that, but I do know that once I saw this and I realized, oh, God is not someone that I define who serves me. He's just he's just him like he's just reality and I either know him and I look to him or I'm living in some like false reality that doesn't actually align with true existence and he was so gracious um, to meet me in that and to reveal himself because that's what he wants he wants communion with us but we have to humble ourselves before we can actually see him as he is And he looked me in the eye there and told me that my sin did not overwhelm him. All the good stuff I did did not impress him one bit. He didn't need any of it. Um, But he was there with me, and he is there with Christiani, even in the suffering. So I just remember feeling, like, very bare before him, like, just vulnerable. Like, there is no hiding behind my righteous acts anymore. Oh, no. Um, But he didn't meet me with contempt. Instead, he offered me his own righteousness to wear. And I could not only stand, but I could run and dance and be fully justified and live abundantly. And that doesn't mean that it's easy. Um, If we follow Jesus, Jesus' life was one of suffering and was one of difficulty. He calls us to things that are uncomfortable But even those end up being a joy because he's there with us. He uses the suffering to open our eyes and clarify what actually matters. I understand more of how he suffered to be able to answer my cry for mercy. In suffering, I gain identification with Christ. And his kind of love is a love worth knowing and being wrapped in. And Jesus offers this same mercy to each of us that you are seen as you are. He is not ashamed. He is not disgusted. He is not impressed. You are not too far gone. But you are radically loved and offered mercy, whether we identify more strongly with the Pharisee or with the tax collector. Remember, he who humbles himself will be exalted, lifted into communion with him. That is a promise. He doesn't hang us out to dry. So to wrap it up, Jesus tells this story because he is not a God of confusion. He is crystal clear about how people are justified before God, that it's as a gift of his mercy and not of our works. He wants us to trust him, that communion with him leads to life abundant. So if this is true, then what? What does this change about how I live my life? A couple questions. So first, if this is true, how does it change how I interact with God? In what ways do I need to surrender to him as the giver of life abundant? Do I need to trust him enough to believe him when he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Give up your fear of man. Do I need to trust him enough to believe him when he says that the kingdom of heaven is worth giving everything for? To believe him when he says that your justification is a gift from me, not of your works. You can't boast in it. Rest in me instead. 
we can know more of who he is and interact with him differently just by talking to him and by reading the word. The tax collector's prayer was not long and flowery. It was just honest. You don't have to come to him knowing everything or cleaned up. You can just come. And then second, if this is true, how can I love those in my life as he loves me? The tax collectors, the Pharisees, and everyone in between. We are not alone in this. Jesus loves to give the Holy Spirit without measure to help us live in greater righteousness and life abundant. That's what he does. And so we can ask God to give us his heart for people, to call them gently yet boldly into the life that Jesus offered to us first, the way that he does in this parable for the Pharisee and for the tax collector. So if this truth is hitting you today, that you are seen fully and completely by Jesus, and that he is not impressed, he is not disgusted, he does not look on you with contempt, but instead he loves you and wants to justify you, come to him in humility. Feel free to come talk to me after or talk to whoever you came with. Know that it's costly to come to him. He will look you in the eye and not let you settle for anything less than life abundant. But if this is true, then he is truly worth it, and that changes everything. Jesus, I just thank you that um, this is true. God, that the kind of love that you have for us is not normal. It is not one that we see often or one that we have in and of ourselves. But God, it is amazing, and I just praise you for it. Lord, I thank you that you choose to justify the unjustifiable, where we could not come to you, and yet you chose to love us and meet us in that. Lord, I pray that um, you would come and meet with us as we come to you in humility, come to you in honesty. Lord, would you meet with us? Thank you that you have died so that we could have that mercy. Don't let us look at you and then walk away unchanged. In your holy and precious name we pray all this.